I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to The Goop Podcast. Thanks for joining us. If this is your first time, here's what you can expect. Every Thursday, and a bunch of Tuesdays coming up, Goop editors will be sitting down with thought leaders who are pushing boundaries in their fields. We'll talk to doctors, creatives, CEOs, and relationship experts. You'll hear me interviewing some of the people I admire most in this world, and you'll also hear a lot from my chief content officer at Goop, Elise Lunin. I love listening to Elise's interviews because she asks the smartest questions and really just listens. I'm excited for you guys to hear Elise's conversation with Bill Clegg today. Bill is one of the most respected literary agents in New York, as well as a very talented writer himself. His latest book is a novel called Did You Ever Have a Family?, which was long listed for the National Book Award and the Man Book Award. Their conversation today, though, was about his two poignant best-selling memoirs from many years ago, Portrait of an Addict as a Young Man and 90 Days. Bill doesn't talk a ton about his memoirs and his experience with addiction these days, so we were especially grateful that he said yes to this podcast. It's such an honest, intimate, and just simply moving conversation. Whether or not you've experienced addiction yourself or in your family or with a friend, I think you will feel moved too. I didn't think that anybody thought or felt or experienced the world in the way that I did until I came into recovery. Okay, let's get to the conversation. Thanks for being here, Bill. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled you're alive (laughs) as the author of two of the most harrowing memoirs I've ever read. It's kind of amazing that you are. It, you know, and a beautiful novel. Thank you. I have many, many questions. I know within, I don't remember whether it was in 90 Days or Portrait of an Addict, you say, you know, from my first breath, I was an addict. Yeah. And I know obviously it's highly genetic. And do you, do you still feel that way? Or do you feel like it was a perfect stew of predisposition and life? I think, I mean, my, my feeling is that that one is born an addict and like sort of depending on what your environment is growing up, like the shape of that expression of addiction or alcoholism is particular. But for a long time, I was looking for reasons. For a long time, I thought that there was like some rosebud moment that like converted me Mm -hmm. and or some circumstance from my childhood, like my mean dad or whatever it was, or the fact that I was gay and I couldn't pee right when I was a kid. And I really believed that there was a, a something. And I remember in early recovery, kind of looking for that. And then at a certain point, after listening to a lot of stories kind of in the rooms of recovery and just identifying so strongly with like a lot of the feelings, a lot of the experiences that people had even before they drank, um, mm-hmm. that's when I just sort of, I just recognized like my tribe. And, and that tribe is so varied. I mean, people who had the most loving parents, who had plenty of money, who had no money, who had parents who were in jail. And it's sort of, it, it cuts through, like, that, that sort of mindset seems to cut through kind of all circumstance. And so that's what makes me pretty confident that, like, you either are or you're not. Mm. And, um, and sort of what that looks like specifically then depends upon, like, what the background is and yeah. if you had a mean dad or not. <laughs> no, it's interesting being a parent myself and talking to other parents about this. Like, how do you recognize the signs? Are there things that you can stave it off, like by making conversations about drugs more part of your family fabric? Do you in some way 
yeah. avert a potential crisis? Like, how do you, what are those early, if, as a teenager, did you know that, were you able to like identify yourself as an addict and what, who would someone else have been able to? If they knew what was going on, for example, like, you know, I had my first drink when I was 12 years old. My best friend Kenny Schwader and I like filled a thermos with like a bunch of alcohol and like went into the woods and like smoked a cigarette and looked at a Playboy magazine that As we one had does. stolen. Yeah, like <laughs> in in the wilds of rural Connecticut. I stole some Uzo. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you can get your hands on. And Zima. Uh, nice. Gold flex. Oh, nice. Yeah. Classy. And um and like I didn't actually I didn't even smoke the cigarette because I was so grossed out by it, but I drank until I threw up and something about that experience made me want to repeat it immediately. And so from that point forward, I drank every day. We had a lot of alcohol in our house. They're in various places, so none of it ever went missing. Nobody ever checked. And so I just filled a thermos and went to my bedroom, and I drank like every single night. So if somebody had like seen me in my bedroom drinking, I sort of meet 12-year-olds now, and, mm-hmm. and I look at them, and I'm just like, that couldn't be true. It, yeah. Like it couldn't be true, but th- but it was, and so I drank alcoholically from the very beginning. Wow. Yeah, and then it got social later when other people caught up with me and started drinking. But I and I think you know later than when I was in New York and working, like I was that guy that if you went out to dinner, you'd have like kind of like a long night. Right. And so for normal people, that might be like once every couple of months, but for me, it was every night. So, yeah, I knew. I mean, I knew that I needed it. The idea that one could live without alcohol was not something that was possible to me. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't conceive of that. Like, that didn't seem like a reality that and, I could occupy. And you've seen that reflected in the rooms amongst other addicts of all shapes and sizes. There's, like, that basic need. Yeah, and that story of, like, drinking or using alcoholically, like, early on, I've heard a lot. Mm-hmm. It's not the same for everybody. It really isn't. The things that I identify with with people, who, like before people started drinking, are kind of just general feelings. There's a, there's a phrase kind of in the, the lingo of, of recovery called a description of sort of feeling a little bit different, which is like an anxious apartness. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I heard that. And just that anxious apartness from others, like from a very early age, even from kind of first consciousness, even amongst like gregarious people, or like, again, like just that sense of being like a little bit removed, needing maybe something to feel comfortable in the community of other people Mm. that I've heard so many, many times. Yes, I've heard that too. So it's like, it's things like that. It's the things like that, or never feeling that there's going to be enough food or toys or whatever it is. Like there's just like some... I'm still that way. Like, I hate tapas restaurants. Like, like I can't bear. And I, I actually, my friends know this. Like, if we go to restaurants and the waitress, which they do all the time now, say, like, we recommend sharing, uh, I, I alert everybody right away that, like, I don't share. I don't like to share either. <laughs> I can't stand it. It makes me so anxious. Yeah. Like, there's not going to be enough or there's going to be one of the good thing that everybody's going to want. someone's going to take and... too much. <laughs> I totally And everybody relate. looks at me like, you're disgusting. Like, yeah. <laughs> but it is what it is. I, I get that. And I think there's, like, a little bit of a phobia, too, of, like, I don't need other people to touch my food. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's just that I want all the food. You like, want all of it. Like, yeah, pretty much. So if at that age, and was it that social projection? I know you talk about this a, a bit in the book, feeling 
people don't like you or that you're unlovable or is that sort of what that anxious? Yeah, like a kind of... You're not enough. Always measuring myself against whoever I was around and not feeling smart enough, attractive enough, rich enough, like educated enough, like whatever, whatever the circumstance was, I felt less than. And yeah. that's from, from as early as I can remember. It's so interesting, like where that, where those like limiting, like where that jail, that self-imposed jail comes from. Yeah. And the fact that it's potentially genetic or... You know, I don't know. It's like I look at my, my – I have an older sister. She's, uh, you know, really just a little over a year older than I am. We're very close in age. We shared a bathroom. We have identical parents, like the same upbringing. And I don't think I've ever seen her drink more than, like, two glasses of wine. I don't think that she is somebody who sits down in a room and sort of imagines herself as inferior to everybody else. Or the flip side of that is sometimes, like, the exact opposite, which is, like – inferior or like wildly superior but like nothing in between not kind of and again the language of recovery sort of like a person among people yeah you know sort of just you know at at the same level as people or just relating to people and not kind of instinctively sort of putting herself like on a pecking order of smarter or less Mm -hmm. smart you know uh more capable or less capable it's just not how she's built and, and yet we have the exact same parents and the exact same upbringing. And um, so there, I think there is a genetic component for sure because, like, I think science has proven that. But also I think it's just there is just like you either are or you aren't. Like, I yeah. mean, we couldn't be more different in that regard. So the healing, because I know you are a fierce proponent of – of a more formal recovery and the rooms and being with other addicts. Like, has that been and enough to, obviously, to maintain your sobriety, yes, but have you, like, he, do you still feel less than? Like, is that persist, those it's feelings of an anxious apartment? Much less so, but it's it, it's a drift in me. It's a, it's a tendency in me, as is the desire to, like, smoke crack until I try and commit suicide in a hotel right. room, a drift in me. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like... That's kind of like on deck is, you know, like right. if, if left to my own devices, I'd end up there for sure. Yeah. So for me, my, my recovery has to be an everyday thing. It has to be an active thing. And because on my own, I'm, I'm you know, I, I go to that. I go to that kind of thinking. I go to that poor judgment. And then I'm drinking and using drugs. It's right. like it's just inevitable. I don't question that. Right. Um, so and I think. The reason why for me, and, and I, I say this for me because I don't, I don't like presume to have the answers for anybody else, but for me, my using and my drinking and all the thinking that was sort of around that was very isolating. And so I, I started in a bedroom like mm-hmm. at 12 drinking alone. I ended up in hotel rooms alone drinking and smoking crack. Like right. it, it really, you know, my disease, which I fully believe it is a disease that's physical and mental and, and spiritual. And and so because it, it that disease wants me to be isolated because it, 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 it takes advantage of that instinct of being apart from other people, for me, I have to like constantly be in the community of other addicts and alcoholics in recovery mm-hmm. and to be reminded that like this is this is what happens to me if I'm not. And I and also the experience of that is less isolating. I feel less alone. I actually, when I said earlier that I like met my tribe, I really met my tribe. It was just like I, 
I didn't think that anybody thought or felt or experienced the world in the way that I did until I came into recovery. Mm. And boy, I like the first, you know, I don't talk about like the exact program of recovery that I'm in because it's anonymous, but like the first room of recovery that I went into kicking and screaming against my will within a like the first couple of minutes, I was in rehab in, in rural Oregon, and which is as far away as like my business partner and my boyfriend at the time could place me. And, and I just started, I heard people and it was, I recognized right away. Mm-hmm. And I knew in that moment that that was the only, that that was my only chance. Yeah. And it was a long road from that point. Like I did not become sober no. like after that meeting, yeah. <laughs> but I understood that that was the only answer was yeah. with them. So speaking of answers and, and just thinking about you as a child and if your parents had been more aware or had been tabulating alcohol or sensed isolation and had tried to intervene, would something like that have been successful? Or do you feel like for an addict to really recover, you have to contemplate suicide in a hotel room after you've smoked a lot of crack? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, tr- the answer is I don't know. And it's a good question. You know, my husband and I are raising my niece right now. And she came to us two years ago. She's four years old now. Mm. And we talk about this. And because she, I'm in recovery. Is she your biological niece? She's my biological niece. And without going into details, like, you know, this disease is is uh, connected to the reason why we're raising her. Right. And we have full guardianship of her, and, and she's in our life. She will be with us until she's out in the world <laughs> as an adult. And so, you know, it was very of a sudden. It wasn't an expected thing. We had about five seconds to decide whether or not, like, this was something that we wanted to do. Otherwise, she was going to go into the foster care system. Oh. She's an amazing kid, and... Um, and but she comes from a family, myself, you know, prominently like right. you know um, of addicts and alcoholics, and and of course I worry. Yeah. And you know I have friends who have kids who are who are her age and older, and I don't know what the answer is. Like as somebody who's you know been sober for you know a bunch of years now, I don't know what the answer is. Like I don't know if if my parents had intervened then, if like hearing people like speak. About about the way I felt would have kind of averted a, a, a whole high school and college career of destructive drinking and drugging and then into my adult life. I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I you know, I tend not to think so. I yeah. feel like I had a lot of drugs and alcohol to do and before I was ready to give them up. Mm-hmm. And but I would hope so. I mean one thing that I see in the rooms of recovery now is there are a lot of young people, a lot, high school, college and I don't, I'm told by people who have been in recovery for a very long time that that's a relatively new development, that that's not been the case, that it was sort of in the stereotypical way. There are a lot of like middle-aged guys like in basements smoking and, you know, complaining about their wives kind of yeah. thing. So I think maybe now, because there are so many young people in recovery, it's possible that like you could find a community early on that would support that. Um, yeah. So and without that community, I think it'd be very tough. Totally. And maybe there's enough once you realize you have that biological hunger, maybe she can, she'll read your book. Like your niece will be able to like touch your experience and know, say like that is not for me. That does not sound fun. Now as a sort of parent, <laughs> uh, having written those books, I'm like, oh gosh, she's going she's gonna to read them someday. And, but at the point at which she's, it's appropriate, uh, yeah, I hope, you know, I, I, I will. And I'll obviously will talk to her as much yeah. as possible. 
But I also know what it's like to have to find these things out yeah. through your own experience. Totally. I think it's also there's some strange promise, too, in this idea that despite the fact that you had an imperfect childhood and a dad who wasn't always kind, that that's not where it would be easy to put all the blame there. And I think yeah. for parents, it's so, tr as you can imagine, incredibly triggering when you're like, what am I doing to fuck up my kid? Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. what am I doing to create this? And if you, to be, to be able to give parents the distance to sort of be like, oh, it might not be me, but I can coach my child through this yeah. or be aware without personalizing it yeah. is probably a much more powerful and productive place for most parents to be in. Yeah, and I think, I mean, having had my own, like, sort of cycle of blame and estrangement and then forgiveness and reunion with my parents. Mm -hmm. Like, my dad died a few years ago. And um, thank you. But it, what was really so lucky was that he and I were able to apologize to each other. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, now kind of parenting, it's sort of amazing. I, I, I think about him all the time because it's really hard. It's so hard. It's really hard. <laughs> and uh, it's like until you do it, you just don't know. And I look at, you know, the way he was raised and what, you know, his parents died when he was very young. He was the oldest of seven. There was alcoholism all over that family. And my dad was like a particular guy. Like he was a pilot. And then he suddenly had like four kids and was, you know, a parent and he just had no idea. And he struggled with alcoholism. Um, he some, he got sober-ish in his, he got kind of old and, and sort of the alcohol was no longer working for him. And so that was kind of his, that it curbed his drinking. But he did have a kind of a, a, a shift in perspective later mm -hmm. in life. But I just, it's really, really hard. And so my feeling about him and my sort of like my, the, you know, I had, I had forgiven him and had made peace with him and really had a nice last couple of years with him. Um, it was a very loving relationship. But I almost, I now wish I could talk to him about like that experience because I have so much more compassion for him. Totally. Yeah, I think so many people were doing the best that they could. And in, you know, that, those moments in the, book are so tender and heartbreaking when you're talking about him and the con and and what was happening with your inability to pee and him like not knowing what to do yeah and not, not taking the right tack obviously yeah but also like your understanding of his lack of understanding I thought was so beautiful yeah and it really I mean it came after a lot of a lot of a lot, work. Of, <laughs> a lot of work a lot of sure. years and a lot of work you know it's like you know, my niece just had a, she woke up and she couldn't use her leg. And so we went to the pediatrician and we were hospitals for special surgery all day to find out that it was actually like a, uh, um, an infection of fluid in her hip that had mm. like disengaged her ability to use her leg. And it was, it's not that common apparently, but her pediatrician thought it was her femur. And I was like, don't you have to fall off like a house to like right, break, break a femur? And and she has a little bedroom. I I, I couldn't <laughs> imagine it. But we responded. I mean, she couldn't tell us what had happened that morning. Yeah. And my husband and I were like upset that she couldn't tell this. Like she couldn't give us an answer of what had happened. And and until we got the you know much later in the day at at hospital for special surgery, this you know diagnosis. One of the ways in which we responded to her in pain was frustration and right. anger. And 
I look at that now and then I look at my father like when I was a kid and of course like you have a little boy who like can't pee right and it, you know doesn't have the language to like articulate why or how and you know part of how he responded was like he just felt like if he was just tough enough right that like I, it would go it that yeah. I would stop that I would knock it off and I know that instinct now in myself as a parent which is like if I'm just consistent mm -hmm. enough and I'm just like severe enough on certain boundaries that like that will affect her behavior and um so it's it's really it's really mm -hmm. humbling it's really really humbling and i'm sure he was so scared yeah so yeah. scared yeah and i think that fear of like is there something wrong did i make something go wrong is paralyzed i think it's a paralyzing for a parent and yeah. manifests and really unproductive yeah and he was an alcoholic so yeah. like the way his personality would shape when he was drinking was like he was as mean as a snake and he was a highly intelligent guy and he knew exactly where to go to like really hurt Wound. you yeah. and so the whole combination of it was really That's fun great. yeah, yeah it, <laughs> it was great. a good time i want to talk a little bit about your relationship and while you were relapsing and and how I know it was obviously it was enabling like if in when you're in a relationship with with an addict, like you can't take on their recovery. Like what is the appropriate like how do you navigate that in your marriage now? And how do you do you have any advice for recovery, either active or prolonged and how to not make those things your own problem? Well, I can name a program that I think is very helpful um, <laughs> because I'm not in, in it, but I, I know that I've driven some people into into <laughs> it is Al-Anon. And that's, that's a program that I know that people have found like an incredible amount of help and community in, in what it's like to have an ac active or sober alcoholic mm -hmm. or addict in your life. And then beyond that, just I think from what I understand, and again, like I am not a member of Al-Anon, um, and though it has been recommended that I <laughs> should go for a variety of reasons, but that there's just, a, there's a certain, that's sort of what we were talking about earlier, is like there's, 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 there's very little that you can control in another person. Right. Whether it's your child and whether you hope they don't become an alcoholic or an addict and the, the choices that you make to sort of make that less likely, in the end, they're going to make those decisions. In the end, you don't have control over it, as you wouldn't a spouse or a parent or a friend or a, a, a colleague at work. And so so I, that's the advice I would give. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what it's like to be in a relationship with me or with another alcoholic and addict, but like, I, I, I trust it's not fun, yeah. especially when they're active. So yeah, but, th but there have been a lot of satisfied customers in Al-Anon, I think. Yeah. Um, so. No, it's true. It's it's also an important lesson, I think, that applies to parents or otherwise. That there are only there there are limits to your power to your power over someone else, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, like you you can't take responsibility for someone else's journey, even if it's harrowing to watch. As yeah, I'm sure it was quite harrowing. And I mean that it's in recovery. I mean, you know, as somebody I work with other alcoholics and addicts, my some of my closest friends are sober alcoholics and addicts. And so that principle of being able to make suggestions, be there to be helpful if asked, but ultimately being powerless if they relapse, which I've seen people mm -hmm. do. And um, it's very, very painful. I think somehow my own experience of like, you know, I have vivid memories of, of people begging me to like come in and get help. 
and there was nothing in me that was able to do that. Mm -hmm. And so that visceral memory of that makes me know that if, if I say that to somebody else who's struggling, like it lets them know that like I'm available to help them. But I also know that like until they're ready, they're not going to. Right. So, so I'm not, I think because of my own experience as an addict, I'm not alanonically challenged. Right. Like I don't chase people into caves and hotel rooms and, you know, into the woods to get them to stop drinking and doing drugs. Like I just give them my phone number and tell them to call me when they want to yeah. get help. Wait for them to come out. As painful and scary as that is. Yeah. No, it's interesting because there are moments within 90 days, which is the rec- recovery memoir where you're, I think it's Polly that you're sort of like trying to find or head off and... It, it's it, it seems like they're not enabling, but that they're that that is the only instance where it's really appropriate to get involved in someone else's recovery. Yeah. Well, Polly and I were the people. Who, I mean, we were getting sober side by side. Also, in the room where we were getting sober, we were the two people who were relapsing all the time and right. co- coming in and you know raising our hands, saying like, "I have one day." Right. And thank God there was somebody else who. Um, was failing him <laughs> really as badly as I was because, and uh, but the, the I think the the special sauce or the magic of, of of recovery for me came in that relationship because it it was active alcoholism and addiction is a, incredibly it is like the the extremity of solipsism it is the extremity of selfishness mm-hmm. it is it is self driven it is you know um self-obsessed and to the exclusion of caring about anybody else like how else could you explain like leaving the people that you love in the lurch like abandoning them in restaurants like not showing up to film festivals in my case like Mm -hmm. you know just all sorts of stuff like that and somehow in recovery like we're like being connected to another alcoholic uh who was struggling as badly as i was was the thing that pierced that solipsism, that sort of thinking about somebody else before myself was like kind of debuted then, mm-hmm. and um, which is pretty late. Like I was in my 30s, you know right. what I mean? And which doesn't mean that I hadn't thought about other people before that. It was just that like in particularly in, in the key of like a- active late stage alcoholism and addiction it was very it was like it was impossible for me to think about anybody else um, yeah and and yet with her there there was like my, my concern for her eclipsed a uh, concern for myself periodically not all the time yeah but, but in a crucial moment when you were about to go it really, and get yeah, high. yeah 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 and nothing nothing stood between when i had made a decision to to use or drink back then there was nothing that could get in the way of it. And that got in the way of it. Yeah. That got in the way of it because I was concerned that if she came in and was looking for me and, and knew that I was out, that somehow that would be determining. I mean, talk about that was also like grandiose and narcissistic, but it was enough to keep me from picking up that night, which is the thing that kept me from from that. And from that point forward, I that was when I finally got yeah. 90 days and, and was able to build some time. Small in miracle. In 90 days, is that... Is 90 days important because it allow it's enough time to sort of allow you to like create new habits and like the cravings sort of start to dissipate? I'm sure there are studies that say that. Like I'm, I don't know yeah. when that actually occurred. You know, it, there's a suggestion of going to 90 meetings in 90 days. And and there it, so there I was I was told early on that that was like just a threshold of sobriety where then other decisions could be made. Like you could start thinking about like going back to work and things like that. And and so I don't know what the science of it is or the psychology of it, but it was 
it, it's a it's a benchmark that you know we use in in recovery and it's like to anybody who hasn't used drugs or uh, you know uh, or drank alcoholically like that might sound like not a very long amount of time it's like a lifetime when it you're counting like days <laughs> like it yeah. was it almost seemed like not achievable for me i didn't think i could get it and yeah. so when i did it was it was pretty momentous yeah it's time for a little break On Saturday, March 9th, I'll be heading back to New York City with GP and the rest of the team for InGoop Health. This is our fifth wellness summit. Each one is a little different, but they're all designed to explore what it means to optimize your well-being. This is deeply individual work. But in general, it's the holistic picture that we're most interested in. Conversations that don't separate the mind from the body or the body from the mind. And of course, the conversations that move us to go further. To think about the soul. InGoop Health has a little bit of all of that. If it sounds intense, it can be in moments, but mostly it's really exciting and very fun. There are talks and panels where some of the brightest thought leaders share new information, insights, and perspective. There are wellness experiences and adventures for almost every comfort level. So you can dip your toe in with a workshop on intuition and creativity, maybe get a vitamin B12 shot, or just head straight to the other side with a medium reading. And of course, there's a lot of good food, drinks, and a pretty great community. You'll meet some of my favorite people at Summit, like intuitives Dagonit Noor, Laura Day, and Laura Lynn Jackson, psychiatrist Ellen Vora, and psychological astrologer Jennifer Freed. If you want to make a weekend of InGoop Health, check out our Wellness Weekender Pass. It's a pretty baller weekend that includes a two-night stay at Park Hyatt, New York, There's a cocktail party and a private book signing with Gwyneth, who will be giving out copies of her new cookbook, The Clean Plate. There's also a VIP workout class and brunch. And the Summit team always comes through with some surprise perks that they won't even tell me about. The Wellness Weekender Pass kicks off on Friday, March 8th, and Summit is the next day. We'd love to see you there. To get tickets, head to goop.com slash ingoophealth. All right, back to today's conversation. So, like, addiction is thrown around a lot now. I don't know if it's thrown around more, like, screen addiction and sugar addiction. And one, like, do you think that that's offensive to addicts? Just I'm sort of curious intellectually. And then also one thing that we've sort of – we've observed at Goop, and I don't know if it's a real thing or it's just – like, I don't know what the line is, but – it seem, there seems to be a lot of sort of late blooming female alcoholics, mm. either women whose children have left and are sort of have idle afternoons to fill, or like women who worked and now don't and are sort of like having boozy lunches that carry over into dinners. Like, have you, have you does that happen in New York? Have you seen that as a phenomenon? I've seen it, but not in any kind of like sort of astounding tr- numbers. No, but it makes sense to me, like in the sense that I know that the more time I have with my mind off myself, like yeah. the less likely I'm going to be to drink or use drugs. So if somebody's, you know, a parent, that's, I mean, talk about like constant service. It's mm-hmm. like you wake up and there's somebody like at your door that's just like, I want a yogurt, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like, 
It's like nonstop. And to peel this tangerine. Oh, oh yeah. those goddamn mandarins. Yeah, all of it. All like, those peels under yeah. my nails. Or like, open my cheese stick. <laughs> um, and like, and so I can, ima- you know, I can imagine like parenting to the point where people, like the kids grow up and go away and then having that vacuum. Yeah. Um, if there's a tendency, for sure, like I, 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 could, I could see that space being filled with alcohol and drugs yeah. very, very easily. Yeah, it's interesting because it's like I don't ever want to under, I don't want to underestimate the power of addiction, and I don't think that I have it. But I was having this conversation with my brother last night as we were started drinking wine at four in the afternoon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was my birthday, but Happy birthday. Still, thank you. But and he can drink a lot, and I tend to drink every night a glass of wine or two, which I think is reasonable. But, like, it's just interesting. If I could drink a glass of wine or two every night, I I would do it. Sure as heck And is that the idea that it's, like, you if you, like, I've heard, like, if you can leave a bottle unfinished, that's a good sign? Maybe. I mean, I don't, I think, again, I think this is different (laughs) for everybody else. If if I could leave a bottle of vodka, like, you know, I I think it's different for everybody. Like, you know, I think there's probably some people who, if 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 two glasses of wine is so important to you that you're making decisions that start impinging on relationships and your ability to show up for other things, like I think that's drinking alcoholically. But like, but I'm I'm also not a doctor. I'm not right. like I, I would never presume to diagnose somebody else. But I really think it's 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 subjective, and yeah. and certainly like a lot of people in my life, I I watch them drink. I've you know I hear about them even using drugs recreationally. And I'm just like, well, that ain't me. You know, I like just not possible. Like I just, it's like, it's not, it doesn't even, I mean, when my father started drinking again, like beer and he was like, I can have a couple beers. This is after being kind of sober for a while. I was just like, I just like, you know, I could not be interested in that salute. Like I was, you know, it was tempting at first. That's not available to you. Yeah, I was just like, that's off the table for me. Like I just, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen when I'm 70. It's not going to happen when I'm 60. Yeah. And so, yeah. But I do think it's like, it's just incredibly different for people. Yeah. And in terms of like all the other addictions that we've, you know, Mm -hmm. screens and food and I mean. um, Sex. Sex, relationships, like all sorts of stuff like work I don't think that's offensive to to addicts and alcoholics who are in recovery because most of the most of the the people I know in recovery are also engaged in particularly after some time has been acquired like sober you start looking at all the other ways in which like that you know sort of essential disease manifests in in debt and in all sorts of other stuff and um so there's there's all sorts of satellite programs that people go into right and uh so a lot of people that I know are, are in multiple programs. It's like whack-a-mole. It really yeah. is. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. It's just like, okay, like I'm out of debt now, but like, you know, I'm having internet sex with like 14 people a day. Maybe I should look at that. Right. Um, and so <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> it's just kind of, yeah, I think, I think that Where it, does that like self-destruct, like the desire, and you talk a bit, a fair amount about feeling suicidal, like that self-destructive sabotage, like what is that the same thing that anxious apartness? I mean, I think yeah, I think it's it I think it comes from like the alcohol, like for the for the, the the first drinks that I took were just, you know, epiphanal. It was just like, oh, it's possible to not feel the way that I feel. Mm. Um and and all I need to do is drink something and then 
later graduate to smoke something or, Mm -hmm. you know, snort something. And so I think like that, whatever that discomfort is, all these other things like going shopping and spending too much money or having lots of sex or being engrossed in a video game or something like that is just being emancipated a little while from like the, Mm. the experience of being yourself. And so for whatever reason, for alcoholics and addicts, for at least for me, that emancipation was like such a relief Mm. that I wanted to return to that relief again and again and again and again. And so that relief, I think each time is a little death. It's like a, it's like a, it's, it's extinguishing that struggle. And so for me, then it, it, it made sense that as my disease progressed and as my drinking progressed and as my using progressed, that like suicide would be the end point mm-hmm. of that. And it's a very heavy duty thing to say. I mean, I remember being in France once and I was on this um, TV show being interviewed when, when Portrait of an Addict came out there and this like bubbly like newscaster <laughs> was like, you tried to kill yourself. Did you ever think about that and, and anymore? Like, and I, I answered it seriously and I was like, you know, I do. And it's like, it's, it's, you know, as I said before, it's a, a drift in me. It's like a, it's mm-hmm. a tendency. It's like, I can think about that. Um, it feels very far away, but it's not that it doesn't occur to me. Yeah. And, um, and I'm grateful in a way for that because I know that that's where I go. And, right. um, and when I did relapse five and a half years after being sober, after just a couple of drinks of vodka, that was my first thought. I was like, oh, I'm supposed to die in Bangkok. Like yeah. this is this is the way it was all supposed to be, and I went right to where I left off the last time I drank, and I'd heard that in recovery. It's like where if you pick up, you're going to end up exactly where you were where you left off, and I didn't believe it. I think I thought that if like I relapsed, I would have a few years of drinking until things got bad again, and maybe yeah. it would have been worth it. And so for me, I'm really grateful for the when I relapsed because it cured me of that fantasy. It's mm. you know I I went right to. Like, I should die. And because I was so connected in the rooms of recovery, it was actually a, a very new sponsee who started calling me as I was drinking and plotting my escape. And again, that kind of obligation to somebody in the rooms of recovery blocked like that path. And so thank goodness. Um, thank goodness. So that, that's another reason why I stay very close to my recoveries because that net in a way that surprised me caught yeah. me then. And so... I just know that like the closer I am to recovery, the closer I am to other people in recovery, the better chance I have. I don't know what it might look like if I ever want to relapse again, but being connected in a daily way to people who are also in recovery, just it, it, it makes me feel safer. Yeah, um, no, I understand the way. So. And you can't be complacent, clearly. In the face of no addiction. It's, no. And you know, it just it's like it always the, the front yard of drinking and using drugs is so appealing. Yeah. You walk by people in restaurants having drinks or you see people in movies like, you know, before things get bad, like doing drugs. And it's like, but knowing where it goes for myself and for other people, it's it's just, I now I'm like, I don't need to test the waters. I don't need to take chances. Um, and also the statistics are just so bad. Like if you yeah. if you actually start reading about like, like people. It's a miracle are, that you're here. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it truly is. And I don't, it's, it's not, you know, a lot of it was, I can't explain it. I feel very, very, like, Mm -hmm. very lucky. But I also know that, like, the the closer I stay to recovery, the more chance I'll stay here and not leave. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Thanks for joining Elise's interview with Bill Clegg. 
You can learn more about him at BillClegAuthor.com, and I highly recommend picking up his books while you're at it. Now to today's AMA. Where did the catchy Goop podcast music come from, and how did you pick it? From Lisa. Lisa, the Goop podcast music is a composition by my old friend John Gold. I became friends with him in high school, and we went to the UC... <laughs> we went to UC Santa Barbara together for my brief stint in college. And he's a brilliant mus- musician and an old friend. And I knew he could perfectly encapsulate the feel- feeling we wanted to convey in the Goop podcast with music. And I love it too. If you have a question you'd like me to answer here, send it over to Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning into the Goop Podcast. We'll be back next week on Tuesday and Thursday. Tuesday continues our special relationship series that is running all of February. To keep up, just hit subscribe. And if you have a chance, please rate, review, and share with a friend. For more info, head to goop.com slash the podcast.